It's an attempt to bring back beginner's mind into the conversation, to open out the frame, and with the minimum of interference or framing from me, to give the language to the the client or the patient and see where it takes them. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. I was talking with a friend the other day who was telling me about someone that I might like to have on the podcast. The person that he was recommending had chops, there was no doubt about it, but what interested me more and the reason why I'm in the process of reaching out to this guy, it's not because of his skills and knowledge. It's because of how he got those skills and knowledge. It's because the guy has a backstory. Our world seems to love degrees, certificates, and bits of proof that you've got something of value. It's one way to decide if someone has the goods, but I've always been more drawn to who is the person that has grown into doing what it is that they do. How is it that they have acquired what they've acquired, and more importantly, how they are engaged in this moment of crafting, curating, and creating their work. I like a good backstory because I'm less interested in what a person has and more curious about how it is that they have meandered their way into their current situation. I'm more interested in the detours, the long ways around, the hunches, serendipity, and perhaps unreasonable dogged persistence that allows a person to see opportunities where others see obstacles, to trust that they are on the right path, even when that path seems to be a complete divergence from what they thought they'd wanted, and to be able to tolerate ambiguity and uncertainty for perhaps years as they put things together in a way that nobody else has. Those people that can take and integrate parts of themselves that on first glance have nothing to do with each other, those odd individuals who are more interested in finding out what is than in being sure that they're right. I'm interested in people's backstory because at any one moment in time, we could point toward life and judge it as success or failure. But to have the kind of mind and spirit that seems unswayed by the comfortable feeling that they're right and unbothered when things don't go according to plan, those are the people that I feel like I can learn something from. You know, you can steal a person's work, but you can't steal the spark that created that work. And it's that spark that at times has illuminated something in me, something that keeps me on my own path, both in times of darkness and of light, something that reminds me that there is an essence that we all carry, something that's unique to ourselves, and it seeks unfoldment in the work that we do. And that's why I'm interested in and why I love a good backstory, because a good backstory it's not about success. It's also about failure. It frequently involves being broken beyond repair. And that brokenness isn't the end of the story. It's the beginning. In a moment, we will get into a conversation on using embodied language in a way that helps you to connect patients up with resources that they didn't realize that they had. Margot Rossi and Nick Pohl have both been on the podcast before, and they have a keen sense of interest in how we can use language to create internal connections that allow our patients to connect up with deeper aspects of the body-mind. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. 
Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine and the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit Meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you are helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up an available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. Often enough, healing has little to do with, air quotes here, doing, and a lot more to do with revealing. Okay, for this conversation in particular, I recommend a quiet, comfortable place to sit down 
and have a cup of your favorite tea as we explore the profound influence of language and presence. Hey friends, welcome back to Geological. I am delighted today to have two of my friends, former guests of the show. They're back, Margot Rossi and Nick Paul. These two folks I love talking to because they're wonderful practitioners and they have this keen sense of using presence and of using language. And we're here in the midst of COVID-19 where we can't really put our hands on people. What, what do we have that can be helpful? We have our presence and we have language and how we use our language and how we can help people to be more present with themselves. And these two have gone deep into this in their work. They're actually doing some work together with this. And, and we'll tell you more about that later. But uh, today, welcome again, Margot and Nick, as we engage in a conversation about the power of language, connection, and presence. Welcome back to Geological. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's always fun. So I want to begin because I also think language is really important. It's one of the reasons that, that I love talking to you guys so much. It seems to me that in any discussion, the person who frames the discussion with their language controls that discussion and makes possible what can arise in that discussion or not arise in that discussion because the frame sets the context. And I know that I've seen this with my patients, especially as they like frame their own experience. And when they do that, there are certain resources that they have access to. And then there's all kinds of other resources, parts of themselves that they don't have access to. And what I've noticed as a practitioner is that sometimes I can see parts of them and, or I could hear parts of them or I, or I can be present to parts of them that they have literally framed out of their experience. And I'd love to get you guys' take on that and, and how you work with that. So thank you for that, Michael. You were speaking about who frames the discussion can have an influence about how we access our resources and how sometimes when you're in clinic, you notice that sometimes patients, you can see parts of themselves that they can't see, that they don't yet have access to, and how you're aware that the conversation and the language can impact that. Did I get that right? Yes, very much so. And what's most notable to me is how they somehow can't see or don't have access. And, and I get curious about now, how is it that I can see it? But of course, I mean, this is kind of human beings, right? We have anything that's in our shadow. Of course, we can't see it. It's available to everyone else. You know, often it's screaming quite loudly. Yeah. So it's notable that you can see it, but they can't see it. Mm -hmm. What would it be like if they could see it? Well, I've seen what happens when they do. On occasion, I will reflect it back to them or I will rename it or reframe it. I always like to be a little careful with that word reframe because because re reframing can also be a very manipulative thing where you like you take, you reframe something because you want to manipulate the situation and get something from someone, right? Salespeople do it all the time. So I, I like being careful with that term reframe. It's a very powerful thing to do. 
Um, but you got to make sure that you're using it for good. I'm not trying to talk my patients into anything, but I would like them to have access to parts of them that I think would be helpful to them. And on occasion, I can reflect it back to them or I'll rename it. You know, instead of that bothersome thing you have, I'll go, oh, wait a minute. That sounds like your superpower. So if I can answer this, Michael, you started by talking about the person who frames the language and you just framed it by asking that question. And to tell you the truth, I'm trying to rearrange my mental furniture a bit because you framed framed things in a certain way. And I'm trying to think, where would I come in to, from where I think about language to, to actually answer that? The person who frames the language, absolutely. And of course, as health professionals or authority figures of any kind, we are kind of supposed to be framing the language, framing the space, framing the expectations. And it brings me back to that quote from, you know, Shunru Suzuki, the Zen master who uh, came over from Japan in the late 50s and with his students wrote this amazing bestseller called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And, you know, the famous quote that in the, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. And that framing is a deliberate um, sort of narrowing down of possibilities, I guess. That's why the kind of language that I like to use with the people who come to see me is the opposite. It's an attempt to bring back beginner's mind into the conversation, to open out the frame. And with the minimum of interference or framing from me to give the language to the, the client or the patient and see where it takes them. Allow them to hear what they're saying. Allow them, it's almost like a mime artist beginning to feel the, the edges of the frame that they're in, because these edges are so invisible most of the time to us as we go through our daily lives and cope with pain and cope with, you know, ev everything that's coming at us. Uh, we ignore these invisible frames around us and around our way of thinking. As soon as you get into that and find out what are the metaphors that are running this person's way of thinking about their health and their life, then things begin to happen and, and there, there are many possibilities. Yes. You, you just said something that totally landed with me because I've seen this happen again and again in my clinic and I know when it happens because I can feel it. it. It will ring me like a bell. Allow them to hear what they are saying. There are these moments where something happens in the conversation. I, I, I know that you've got some skill with this and, and you've given a lot of thought to it. I mean, you've got a fantastic book about it. I've kind of stumbled into this stuff just because I've practiced long enough to have enough failure that I realize often the stuff that's in my mind isn't helpful. And if I can find out what's in my patient's mind and just sit with them long enough, eventually they'll tell me what they need. But it seems to take a long time before we get to that place where they can hear what they're saying. So can you help me out here with some ways of being able to facilitate this process a bit? Because I really do feel like I'm kind of wandering around in the woods and on occasion I go, oh, look, pretty flower. That worked. How'd that happen? That, I think, is a skill that Margot possesses in bucket loads. <laughs> and uh, since... Um we kind of met through your geological podcast and we've been having some 
sessions to, you know online exploring this and margot I, you know i'm really curious about yeah you know, i was really surprised for example when margot told me that the first for the first session that she sees a patient she doesn't do any needles at all so margot what's your secret well thank you nick i i want to come back to something michael said because i thought it was really beautiful uh, you started by asking the question you know you notice that you're aware of things that you're patient might not be aware of, and you would like them to have access to those internal resources that you see are there, their superpower, you see their superpower, and you would like to figure out how to help them access that superpower too. In a friendly way. In a friendly way. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes they're enemies. Sometimes my patients think their superpower is the enemy. Yes. Yes. So kind of presenting an opportunity to uh, invite them into investigating that in a way that is feels safe and secure and maybe even a little playful. Mm. To me, that's the key to allow them those moments that they can really hear themselves. And so what I do in my first session is I mostly just follow the principle of I'm here to create a space. So like that chapter 11 of the Tao Te Ching, it's the space in the clay vessel that you've shaped that makes, it's that emptiness, it's that spaciousness that makes that vessel useful. So with the vessel being my office, first I want to invite them into a space that feels safe and Playful, So we can look at something that may have been viewed as something serious and critical, life-threatening, chronic, that we can start to look at it in a, in a way with curiosity. And that, that is, to me, is the medicine. So, I mean, I love using needles and I love acupuncture. I love the spirit of the points and I love the channels. And... I find that it's all about presence anyway. So it doesn't matter if I use needles or if I just set my room up in a way that's inviting or I use language. So that's essentially what I do. I think I think being with someone, being present, and I'm sure we'd love to talk about what, what that means. I'd love to know what that means. I would actually love to know what that means because I hear this a lot. It's like, well, take a deep breath and bring yourself into the present moment. And there's a part of me that goes, what are you talking about? I mean, there's a part of me that's just cantankerous. Like like if I'm ever at a yoga class and they say, take a deep, calming breath. And I'm thinking, screw you. You don't tell me what to do. <laughs> I mean... Well, let's let can can we take take the, the language there, Michael, and be forensic. There's a part of me, and that's uh -huh. exactly it. There's another part of you, which is the embodied part of you that knows how to breathe, knows how to be still, knows how to feel the sheer wonder of embodied presence. And these two parts, you know, there's enough material out there now by. Real authorities like Dan Siegel, Ian McGilchrist, Alan Shaw, 
on how these two sides of our brains operate in very different ways, how the left side for most people is the verbal side, the side that says, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? It needs to know what you're talking about because it's verbal. It doesn't do the body. It's only the right side of the brain that is actually better connected to our somatic sense of ourself. And the, the way these two sides communicate is not very good. And we live in a culture almost globally now, a culture which is very much um, emphasizes how we're experiencing through the left side, the verbal side, the, the side with the to-do list, the side which always wants evidence and measure to measure things and to know if they're safe and so on. That's the side that we mostly live through. And so you come into your yoga session or your acupuncture session, and that side is still in control. And I'm what I look for is what I call body-friendly language, which the left brain can hear, but the right brain is also listening to. The right brain starts saying, hey, there's someone here who's talking my language. Ooh, they're talking to me. Exactly. Body, say that again. Body-friendly language. Tell me more about that. I'm... You've, you've got my body, right brain side interested. Well, maybe that's because I've been attempting uh, to speak in a way that is, you know, it's resonant, that has vibes to it. It's not just a clipped container of information. It's actually, oh, you know, how do we use, how do we modulate the sounds that come out? And I guess the most important thing about body-friendly language, it kind of takes us back to the, this beautiful quote about the beginner's mind. When are we really beginners? We're really beginners when we pop right out into the world. Just, you know, in our earliest weeks, we have no words. And people are talking words, but we don't understand what the hell they mean. What we're listening to is the sounds, the resonances, the emotional qualities, the relational qualities of these words, the sounds around us, how our mother's voice sounds, how our father's voice sounds, whatever. This is what we're listening to, and this is where we begin with sound and with language, the relational, emotional qualities of it. And when you can step back from all of your theories and all of your expertise, which are all very useful, and step back and just listen to the sound of your own voice. And, and as we were always trained to do in Chinese medicine, the sound of our patient's voices. What's in there? There it is. It's in the five elements. We have a clue that different sounds have different meanings, different parts. I love the way that you used parts a moment ago. It, 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 it kind of settled me down on the inside. Oh, my left brain goes, oh, you saw me. Thank you because I love me my evidence-based medicine. So thank you, Nick, for seeing me. And then the other side goes, ah, that noisy dude doesn't let me speak too much, but, but Nick just heard me. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love to do. I, you know, when somebody comes in and I start listening, I'm listening to both sides. And just having somebody doing that makes a difference already. So when you say that you listen to both sides, it makes me think, ooh, this guy is kind of bilingual. I mean, he might be using English, but he's speaking to two different parts of the brain, two different parts of the nervous system. I mean, we have all these different parts on the inside, but let's just for the moment say there's right side, left side, there's body and mind. 
two sides of a continuum. It sounds like you have some ways of knowing when you're speaking to which side. You know, again, I, I, I come back to bilingual, knowing to use which language at which time. Well, that's just your intuitive skills as a, as a practitioner there, Michael. You're tuning into something which I'd forgotten, but now you say it. It comes right back to me. It makes perfect sense. When I was born, you know, there were two different accents. My mother um, was American. My dad was English. So you can imagine this little baby brain already trying to think, wait a minute, these people sound different. <laughs> I grew up mainly in the, in the UK, so you can hear I've got a pretty good British accent. But that, you know, that sort of bilinguality, is very, there's a lot of very interesting research about kids who grow up with parents of two languages and so on. It creates an, an openness, I guess. I, I do ask myself sometimes, why am I such a nerd? Why am I such a geek about language? Why does it matter to me so much? And, you know, especially when I'm training people to do it, and it doesn't seem to matter so much to them. <laughs> but this thing about, you know, if we're working with the body, if we're working with energy, if we're working with chi, the language is all chi. Our thoughts are chi, and our breath is chi, and, and the words come out on our breath, and they come from the lungs and the heart and the throat. It's so embodied. It's so embodied. That's where I'm always coming from. It's, it's interesting talking to you two because what we're talking about in the way that we talk about it, it very quickly shifts from that um, very verbal left brain to this kind of embodied sense. The embodied sense is interesting. And it's, you know, it's like, this is why we have poetry and this is why we have amazing stories. And this is why we have music because there are so many experiences in life. You can't quite grab them with words. And in the healing work that we do, there's a lot that you can't quite grab with words. And yet there also is quite a bit that you can. And especially as we're here where we can't really put our hands on people, this really is a channel that we can use in a big way. I'd like to shift this just a bit and talk about language like to get your thoughts on this when dealing with very somaticized issues. So it's one thing to come in because you're anxious and, and work with language that way. But I think it's another thing when someone has terrible back pain, they're locked down, they're 83 years old, they can't go see their physical therapist, they can't see their acupuncturist, they can get a telemedicine consultation with a doc who might recommend pain meds. I'm wondering how we might be able to help them. Well, I, I feel squarely positioned to answer that question. And that's because I am the program director. Well, currently I'm, I'm the host. But a couple of years ago, I helped develop a program on um, helping folks learn self-care skills to deal with chronic pain and stress. And as I was pitching the idea for the structure of the program and the content of the program, one thing that I had to really drive home or I felt was important to drive home to the medical doctors on our advisory board was that pain and our emotional and mental response to pain are linked. So you began your question with, you know, something 
a patient presenting with something like an anxiety versus something that's really somatically centered in their body, like this pain of this 83-year-old that you're describing. And I would say they're they're the same. The two are linked. They're, you know, it's like a mind and body, the yin and yang, it's the same thing. So either way, I mean, even if it's anxiety, you can still use language through your 10 questions, through your body language, through your presence, you can still help that patient connect with their body experience. And as Nick was saying, once you do that, once you get the language and the body connected, you're connecting the mind and the body. And that's when awareness starts to bubble up or expand or when you might want to say, well, the awareness is always there. That's when these separate parts of ourselves, we start to see them in our awareness. We get we gain some consciousness of them. And it's in that moment that things can start to shift. It's in that moment that things can start to be um, investigated with curiosity and understood in new ways. And that starts to undo the knot of whether it's the physical pain or whether it's the anxiety, that can be such an effective treatment. So I would just say it doesn't really matter where the pain or the suffering is, if it's located in the body or if it's located in the mind. The skill of using language and presence to help people begin to have a relationship with that is so juicy and powerful and, you know, Michael, as you said, you, when you see people accessing those internal resources, there's a big shift in the room. I mean, you can feel it as a practitioner. You feel it land. You see it land in them. And to me, in a way, the rest is just candy. That, that was it right there. And that can happen within two minutes of talking to somebody. It might take a little longer, but it can happen. It can happen fast. Hello, everyone. Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory, practice it in your own kitchen, and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online, and if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. I, I want to be a little bit of a devil's advocate here. Just call me Lucifer. <laughs> One of the things that I know that I run into, and I think a lot of people run into, is, is some kind of resistance. And, and let me speak a little more as to what I mean by that. Many people come to us, or at least they come to me, because they got this thing and they want to get rid of it. It's like they don't want to explore it. They don't want to understand it. 
They're not trying to get friendly with it. They're not curious. They just want to get rid of the damn thing. And, and a lot of folks, you know, in, in our modern medicine is all built around, yeah, we're going to help you get rid of this thing, ideally without you participating too much. We, we're going to do it for you. But what I hear you talking about is the exact polar opposite. We're not going to get rid of it. We're actually going to go deeper into it. And it's just like, you know, in the ocean, you could be in this like horrible storm. You got 40 foot waves, you know, like ocean tankers are like, you know, ready to capsize giant storm. You go a little ways below the water and it's still. <laughs> so I get it that we can get below the water, but what happens when we're still on the surface and, it, and it's kind of a rough go? How can we dive down a bit? Well, Yesterday, I've been taking Nick's advanced course in clean language, and in yesterday's class, we played with uh, role-playing a very resistant body-mind for a patient or a client, and it was fascinating to hear the response of the, my fellow students and Nick. So there you go, Nick. Take it away. <laughs> well, I'd be fascinated to hear what happened for you, because we were in Zoom breakout rooms, so I didn't get to see what was going on there. But I had the fantastic opportunity to, to role play a difficult client uh, and to, to do exactly what you just said, uh, Michael, to allow myself not to be a nice, mindful, practitioner kind of person, but just to really give give a, a bit of stick to the person who was playing the practitioner role and just sometimes i could as he asked these clean language questions i i got a glimpse of something different of some new possibility and i also got just role playing as you do these things just pop into your head i got an, a memory of a time when my this was a kind of backache thing when my back was fine and i could move and as i started talking about it I started sort of moving side to side and my fists kind of came up. I don't know what this role play was all about, but he didn't he didn't notice that. He, he didn't respond to that in his role as practitioner straight away. And I said, look, I'm, you just see my body language. I'm twisting side to side. My fists are coming up. It's like I'm remembering some time when I was a younger man. There was testosterone. Maybe I was into boxing, whatever. That energy is coming back even as I think about it, even as I talk about it. It really was literally like I was watching a movie in my mind's eye of a time when I was connected to these resources. And to give another example of that, you know, a, there's a lot of good work now with people with dementia and Alzheimer's here in the UK playing those people the songs from the Second World War, that, you know, great ballroom music and stuff, and people come back to something more like consciousness. And these, you know, this, however we can get people to access either by going back to the memories or by thinking about possible futures. It's a it's rather a nice little slap in the face, a polite slap in the face for mindfulness, which says we've always got to be in the now, in the present moment. Actually, sometimes just going into a possible future where there are resources and you can connect to them brings you back to the current the present moment in a different way. Or you go to a time when. I, I just the way that you said it, a time when and all of a sudden, I think about, oh, well, there's possibilities in that. Because there's all kinds of time whens, in my experience. And I suspect all of us have a time when. You, you bring up the, 
the people with dementia and you play them some music from a time when they were young and vital and connected and, you know, vibrant with life. And it changes them. I've, I've seen those YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of us have. So a time when I'd love to hear from either of you a little more about a time when. Okay. So I'm going to go back to yesterday's class, a time when we were asked to role play being a different, uh, difficult client. And of course that's role playing. That's let's admit that that's different from reality. Is it? (laughs) It was very real for me. Bravo. (laughs) Bravo. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm actually going to come around through your question about a time when to answer your previous question about, you know, someone's resistant, if their mind is resistant or whatever, whatever their experience is that they are coming in somewhat defended or protecting themselves that they might not want to get into their body. Um, One of the things I love about this process, this skill set of using learning and using language in the clinic to really help people connect with their internal resources is that the questioning starts with an investigation of what's present for you right now. Can you, is there a size and a shape to it? Is there a particular location to it? Is it on the inside or the outside? So you're asking people to investigate something that is physical. Where is it? How big is it? What does it feel like? What does it look like? It's taking shape. Mm-hmm. You know, so you start with that. And let's say that the person really doesn't want to answer those questions. I don't know. I don't know what I don't know if it's an achy pain. I don't really know where it is. I just I just can we just get on with this? Right. Yeah, exactly. It's like, what kind of pain is it? Well, you know, it hurts. <laughs> exactly. But the beauty is once you kind of move through these questions, these clean questions, you ultimately can come to the question of, and what would you like to have happen? And that that moves them into a time. Maybe they feel it was in the future, or maybe they connect it back to the past. What would I like to have happen? I would love to be able to play with my kids again, the way I used to on the floor, you know, and it was so much fun. Or what would I like to have happen? Oh, you know, I've always imagined what the icebergs look like in Antarctica. And boy, would I love to be able to get on a ship and sail there and actually see that for myself. So you're getting down into the meaning of of what is important to them. Yeah. And then the possibilities open up again. Mm -hmm. They've been kind of in a cage of their discomfort, whether it's mental, emotional, physical, spiritual. And now they're being invited to, oh, look at, open up my vision again. And the how you do that and when is that going to happen, it doesn't matter. It's just that invitation. And what would you like to have happen? Yeah, I've got a friend who uh, works with people doing different kinds of consulting and change work. And and she likes to say, and, and oh man, I get reminded of this all the time, the how is not important. 
-hmm. you'll figure the how out if you know what the what is. Or the why, you know, why, why, why it's important. That can be really useful too. Nick, you want to say anything, jump in about that? Um, just, you were talking about pain and how people can be resistant to moving away from that pain. I, I think it's worth remembering that this whole vast wave of awareness now about mindfulness mm -hmm. began with John Kabat-Zinn in Massachusetts, in the hospital there working with patients with chronic pain whose pain was so bad that the medical people hadn't been able to do anything more mm -hmm. with them. So the doctors were kind of happy to let them go to this weird guy who's going to run some kind of mindfulness thing. And it, it was his huge passion and his huge compassion, but also that discipline of mindfulness, which ultimately makes you realize, hey, no one's going to change this except me. This is my pain. And I'm the only one who can actually change it. And how we use language to help help that to happen is really what we're talking about here. And this kind of body-friendly language, like one very useful principle of body-friendly language is to talk about what's needed, not about what's wrong. So even you know, in, in acupuncture, you, you might say, well, the reason why you're feeling exhausted is because your, your kidney energy is just completely shot to pieces. Uh, this, is, this is talking about what's wrong, and it's probably not too helpful. And people will then come away from that session with a kind of label around their neck saying, mm, kidney energy shot to pieces. If you just say, well, the reason why you drifted off there during the session and you're feeling tired is is just, you know, it's because you need to rest. You need to take some time out from all of this, you know, your, your, this hectic schedule of yours, something like that. Just give them something about what's needed, not about what's wrong. That's one very simple principle, but powerful principle, a body-friendly language. And body-friendly language ultimately is the language of mindfulness. I was just going to say another beautiful thing about this embodied language this body-friendly language is taking Nick's example of, you know, a kidney deficiency. And Michael, you may, you may have had this experience. Patients come in and say, oh, I saw an acupuncturist when I was in Florida, and they told me I had kidney deficiency. Well, what else did you learn? That I have kidney deficiency and that acupuncture and herbal medicine can help. You know, to me, that's not really empowering the person. Um, and speaking to speaking to what might be needed, again, with clean language, you would you would check it out with them. So you would check out, here's what I'm thinking based on the medicine of what might be helpful to supporting your kidneys. It might be helpful to rest. It might be helpful, you know, to eat oysters, whatever it is. It might be helpful to take this uh, classical formula, herbal formula might be helpful to do Qigong. You check it out with them so they can try it on for themselves and go, well, how would that be if you did Qigong every day? Nah, I don't, I'm not really into Qigong. So instead of just giving them a prescription and sending them home, again, this is another opportunity. You're inviting them to check in with themselves. What are my resources? How could I build my resources? And what's, what's the most ethical and relevant way for me to build my resources. It might not be what everybody else does, 
I might have a I might have a different feeling. If they don't resonate with your recommendation, they're not going to do it. <laughs> you know, I've noticed that. We call those non-compliant patients and we get mad at them. Exactly. And it's really just an unskillful way of relating to someone. You didn't we didn't check it out. We didn't we didn't get curious and investigate like, hmm, what would work for you? Yeah. I, I want to come around to that in in another way here in just a moment. But first I want to get into this diagnosis piece in the way that we use language. And something that I've just noticed about people in general, myself included, that you know, we like to have answers, we like to know what's going on. I've noticed that patients they love having a diagnosis. It's like really important. They have a very hard time with, I've got this problem and nobody knows what it is. We don't have a name for it. I have had patients say to me, I don't care if it's cancer. I just want to know what it is. Whoa. Right? I mean, that blew me out of the water hearing something like that. People get attached to their diagnoses, right? They'll come in and you ask what's going on. They'll go, well, you know, I have X, Y, Z as if that's supposed to tell us anything. But people like to glom onto these, these frames and these diagnoses. I guess that's the left brain, the, the part that likes to know and, and, and feel like there is some kind of sensibility in the world and it's got stability to it. But what we're talking about here is going into, a, you know, into the body in a way and going into the mind in a way that, that can discombobulate things. I love the idea that you were talking about, Margo, here, where instead of saying, oh, you've got kidney deficiency, we can look at it and, and come at it from another side of, oh, here are some things that might be helpful given you have these signs and symptoms or these experiences. Here are some things that, that might resonate that could be useful for that. So two things. One is, what is it about us that we want to glom onto that diagnosis and how can we work with that with our language? And then I've got another question I'm going to come back to later, a bonus question, but I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. Okay, so I'm going to try this on for myself. Several months ago, well, actually, it's been more like a year now, but I was having this kind of chronic niggling pain, you know, and my lower right quadrant. And I was like, is it my ovary? Is it my psoas muscle? Is it, part, is it my appendix? I didn't know what it was. And I noticed my brain, I wanted somebody to affirm one of those diagnoses or come up with something different. So I went to my lymphatic drainage massage therapist who actually helped me the most, my acupuncturist who I adore. And I asked, I, I don't go see Western medicine physicians, but I have a lot of friends who are medical doctors. So of course I, what do you think? And what was curious to me was, why did I want to name it? Why couldn't mm -hmm. I just experience it the way it was? And I realized that putting a name on it, oh, it's polycystic ovarian syndrome. That takes it out of my experience and puts it on a shelf over there that I can go, oh, oh, that thing that I'm feeling is polycystic ovarian syndrome. It like separated me from it. And for some reason, maybe it's because we're conditioned that way because our Western medicine is like that. It put it on a shelf away from me and, and I could relate to it when I wanted to, which of course was when I felt the discomfort. Um, 
And sometimes even when I felt it, I still didn't want to relate to it. Uh, so it, it kind of made a separate, a me and a that thing. Um, and for whatever reason, I wanted to do that. What my massage therapist did with me was she just kept me bringing me into the experience. We don't know what that is. Let's just, let's just come back to the feeling. Is that okay with you to come back to the feeling? Do you feel safe enough to explore it? You know, and over the months of doing that, we didn't, we didn't do any really physical medicine for it. It was, it was a process of just tuning into it and working through some, some questions. She had read Nick's book, so she was working with clean language. <laughs> and it really helped. But I think that's, I think it's partly conditioning. And I think it, there's something soothing about separating through a diagnosis. You can, you can kind of call it that thing over there. It's not really me, that thing. I don't know. That's my theory. I, I really appreciate you sharing that. It, it comes back to the thing I was talking about earlier, where people come in, not because they want to get closer to something, but they want to get further away from it. Mm. And, and they're hoping we can just take it away with it being, you know, in that further away position. And now we're just going to take it away. A lot of people come to us for that. And what I hear you saying is that with a diagnosis, yes, we can take it and, and, and place it further away. We can put it on the shelf. It's this thing. The, the, the diagnosis separates. It doesn't connect. Hmm. And what you were just talking about was a process of setting aside the diagnosis and becoming curious about what that is and then getting curious about what that is and, and staying. It's like, you know, little kids, they're like endlessly curious about stuff, right? They'll like dig and dig and dig and dig. It's hard, but we can short circuit that by naming it and sticking it on a shelf. Yeah. Um, if I can come in here, I, I think that that very powerful thing you said a while back, Michael, about, you know, a patient saying, I don't care if it's cancer. I just want to know what it is. I want a name for it. You're, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's coming back into the, the verbal mind, the left brain dominance. I want to make sense of this, even if it means my life only, you know, is, is going to end soon. And we, we just need to be realistic here. To start off, for example, those people who went to John Kabat-Zinn's early experiments with mindfulness were only there because the pain was so bad that there was nothing else they could do. And this is a standard rule in all kinds of therapy, psychotherapy as much as um, the kind of things that we do. A lot, of the, a lot of the time people only come when they've hit the rock bottom. There's nothing else they can do. They've got to try it. Uh, which is fair enough. That's how life is. Um, That's why we're in business. <laughs> yeah. And and let's, you know, I don't know about percentages, but that's how an awful lot of people think before they would even think about coming to see people like us. Uh, but once you've got that, once you've got the person there, and this is what I think Margot is so expert at, what happens in their, in the resonance between them and you? As the practitioner, if the practitioner has a simple sense of confidence, of knowing, they, yes, I've seen this before, you might want to use reframing. You might want to use very directive, positive language at first. I know what's going wrong. We can tell you what the diagnosis is. These are the kind of things we're going to do, and you're going to feel a lot better once we've done them. 
even if it's taking steroids, whatever it is, that's confidence. That's talking to the left brain. That's giving a to-do list. That's getting people happy to start with, getting them on board. Then, as you were saying, Michael, in your podcast recently about listening, um, the the next thing is, you know, where do we go from there? If a person's very cut off from their body, if they have almost no kinesthetic sense, and if all they say is, it, it just hurts, then you just have to start somewhere. And that's where the mindfulness comes in. A simple body scan is a good way to begin. You know, directing someone's attention to their left big toe. Oh, I never thought about that before. But just going down there and gradually coming up through the knees and the hips and the belly and so on. This is a new way of paying attention to your body. It's a training. It's boot camp. For those kind of folks, it's a good thing to do. They might not want to do qigong yet, but sooner or later, maybe they will. So this is a gradual slope. But the point I'm really making here comes back to what you were saying earlier, Michael, about presence. What is presence? Why do people keep talking about presence? It's kind of a buzzword these days. Sure is. Yeah. Presence. Exactly. It is. What are the qualities that we bring as a practitioner to the way that we are present with that person? Is there a confidence there? Is there a sort of wobbly feeling? Oh God, I don't know if I can help this person. You know, that, that presence radiates, that presence creates space, which begins to open little windows maybe in the other person's mind. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's pretty much how I would be thinking about this. It's a, you're not going to create miracles. Sometimes, of course, you will. Uh, you know, just doing shiatsu or doing acupuncture, you go to the. You don't ask them what they want to have happen. You don't. You just put them, put them down, put the needles in, and sometimes it's amazing, and they think you're a miracle worker. And if that's thirty percent of your bread and butter business, then great. Uh, but there's a next step. You know, that that's the thing. What is it that's happening in your everyday life that's causing this to come back again and again? Oh, but I cured you miraculously three months ago and you've come back. You know, so that's the next level. Are people interested in becoming interested in themselves, in their lifestyle, what their diet is, you know, emotional situations, relationships? Are they interested in taking that next step? We just have to go step by step with this stuff. This raises a question for me as a practitioner. When we put the patient on the table and they get helped, and they walk out and they go, you're a miracle worker. You took my pain away. Question comes up for me is, who took whose pain away? What's actually happened here? Have I really done that? It seems to me that it's the patient who's doing the healing. I mean, we get to assist. And, and I think when we use skillful means, let me give you an example. Um, I like to write and I send a newsletter out from my clinic every now and then. Um, and when I write, I just write, I just, blah, you know, and I go and I kind of edit it, but I've got an editor who can go look at my work and she tightens it up and she doesn't leave a fingerprint. It's all my words. It's all my spirit. It's all me. She's just tightened it up. And I wonder about this in the people that we work, are we doing it or is the patient doing it or are we doing it to get what? It's like, what's happening here? Ta-da. That's a profound question. <laughs> that's, the, that's the sound of the Mac booting up. <laughs> <laughs> <Ta -da. laughs> 
<laughs> oh, I just I just blew your circuitry. No, you you you, you hit the nail on the head. Mm. Well, I I could I just quickly say in, in a, a first response to that that the the left side of the brain does think about the body and the way it thinks about the body is in a very mechanical way it thinks of the body as a collection of mechanical parts which kind of fit together and can be taken out and fixed and so on it's a perfect analogy for how like a surgeon has to think and so on and that's really i think what's happening when when somebody comes along with a pain and you take the pain away their left brain is is what's engaged there and it comes back to what i was just saying that that process might happen two or three times then the question is when is their right brain willing to get engaged willing to get interested in you know what's going on in my body or it's not just a bicycle repairman here it's uh, what's going on in this organic presence this organic self of me not just the, the mechanics of me that's the first way i'd come back to that yeah i just wanted that that's that's the attitude and the assumption I have with all my patients is they're doing everything. I'm just showing up to create the container. And my job is to, yeah, just be present. And again, we can talk more about what, what that means to me and how, mm -hmm. how one can cultivate that because it, it certainly can be cultivated. And that all that's happening is what's already already here and we know that from physics you know we know that from chemistry there's there's no energy that's being created or destroyed it's just how it's manifesting and how where it's moving and we can do little things to help move it and invite it and connect to it but there's nothing new that we're creating there with our patient it's all it's all right there in the moment for us to tap into and that's what that's that's what gets me up in the morning and why, you know, my family would say I'm a complete workaholic. It's just because I love this. I love it. So I just love it. It's great medicine. It engages you and it energizes you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, talk, talking to Margot, if I was a, a patient coming to see you, Margot, I don't see how I could not be aware of the sense of possibility that you seem to convey and that's the thing when we in clean language we have these questions about what would you like to have happen you know questions which are a little challenging questions which put it back to the to the patient but they're there for a very good reason and it, it shifts our therapeutic conversation from the uh, diagnostic and the searching for reasons and problems to the more uh, more kind of coaching style of looking for what needs to happen and how can we help that happen and tap into those inner resources and it's worth remembering that coaching originated in athletics in sports coaching started as a way of helping people who already had talents already had power strength and gifts to get beyond a plateau, to get to the next level. And that's kind of what we're doing with these questions is we're acknowledging that these, the person has these strengths and, and resources, and we're just challenging, challenging them in a user-friendly way and a body-friendly way, I hope, to, to realize that. And, and as the practitioner, we, we can keep our sense of humor, <laughs> we can, be relaxed we can 
sit in an aligned and comfortable way. We don't have to let the pain that our patient is in radiate into our own fibers so much. We can sort of mirror it back to them and give them a sense, hey, there are possibilities here. And here's a coach. Here's somebody who's going to help me step by step connect with those possibilities, those resources of mine that I forgot about. Which is what I was talking about earlier in this conversation about noticing that there are resources that my patients had, but they weren't they weren't seeing it as a resource. In fact, they might have even seen it as the enemy in some ways. They had a bad opinion about it. Or maybe someone in their family had a bad opinion and they believed it. That kind of thing. I, I am really struck in having this conversation with the two of you. I realize here as, as we're getting toward the end, and I still have a bonus question that I that I just have to get asked in a moment, but but I realize as, as we're having this conversation that in my work, I think I have not given the left side of the brain enough due and enough credit. I think I spend a lot of time trying to bring that right side along and, and, and kind of, and, and actually not being that respectful of the left side. It's true. I think I've been trying to shut down certain parts of my patients because it, it, it's troublesome to them. They have a bad opinion about it and I have a bad opinion about it. And yet what I hear you talking about, especially hearing you, Nick, the way that you phrased it, I don't even remember what you said, but it just kind of landed, that you bring along, it's like you give the left side what it needs. It's like it needs something. Fine. You just give it to them. Here you go, honey. Have a cookie. You'll feel better. And then you get to work with the right side. That it's not about getting rid of one. It's maybe about calming it down, but bringing them both along. The thing that might be the enemy is not the enemy. It might actually be an ally. That's what I'm taking from that. Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking again, too, about your question, Michael, of why do we, why are we attracted to diagnoses? Um, so there's a saying in mindfulness and, um, and neurobiology, you got to name it to tame it. So putting words to your experience, like, um, uh it could so let's take the example of chronic pain so name it to tame it could mean uh so does your pain have a location yeah i feel it in my you know i feel it in my shoulder up here um and what's that like is it uh you know in chinese medicine we might say is it an achy pain is it a sharp pain Okay, it's yeah. Oh, I never thought about that. Yeah, it's a it's a sharp pain. Sometimes it's achy, but yeah, it is. It's sometimes sharp. So we're giving words to the experience. Um, we might also say, uh, and when you think about your pain, do, what thoughts come up? What thoughts are you aware of? Oh, am I going to have this the rest of my life? Is it going to keep getting worse? So. We're putting words to it, so that's all that left brain. And of course, left and right are connected. It's not like they're two separate entities. Uh, but you, we start using language to connect the two sides of the brain so that they can be friends and they can work together and they have different skills. I like Nick used um, the phrase, you know, for the most part, the right side of the brain is really connected physically or that's its, um, that's its skill more than the left, but it, it's, they're not exclusive. They need, they need to work together. They, they do. And the trick is that the right brain knows that. 
unfortunately, the left brain doesn't know it. The left brain has this attitude that it doesn't really need the right. In fact, in the early days of neuro neurology, the the right brain was was called the silent side. It was considered to be a place where nothing much happens, but because <laughs> the verbal stuff was all on the left. But I, I've got a, a metaphor here. I've got an analogy that's just coming to me and hearing Margot talk. It's like the way that libraries used to be and the way that they are evolving now to be part of our culture. That it, you can imagine the left brain in, in its sort of more primitive sense as an old-fashioned librarian who, you know, everything's in categories, everything's nicely labeled, all the books are on the shelves. You bring something new in, and I don't know where that's going to fit here. I'm not sure about that. It's like that left-brain capacity of not recognizing something new if it doesn't have a label or a name or a shelf number for it. The Dewey decimals don't don't fit here, you know. And that's what the right brain is all about. It's that, it's that wonderful childlike beginner's mind awareness of what's really happening right now. What's happening in my body? What's this feeling that hasn't got a name? Things, you know, things like focusing, which are all about gently and patiently finding the right name for a felt sense, are, are so wonderful, wonderful practices. But thinking about how libraries are evolving into being much more connected to what's going on, you know, you can have a pace, place for kids, you can have video, you can have multimedia, you can have all kinds of stuff going on in a library. Now it doesn't have to do with books. And that's how a rich, sophisticated left brain can be. It can be that this is coming back to the, you know, what is the real role here in Chinese medicine between the emperor and the ministers? The left brain really should be a, like the kidneys, like an intelligent minister to the right brain, which is the part of the brain which is truly connected to the heart, to the place where the emperor sits. And the intelligent minister of the left brain needs to be there as a, as a really valuable servant mm -hmm. to that much more open awareness of the heart energy. Um, to I think you were saying, Michael, that the, the character for, for listening, ting in Chinese, includes the, the, um, the um, you know, bit about being a sovereign. Yes, yes. It's got the ears, the eyes, the heart, and the sovereigns. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And that, that's the ideal relationship between left and right brain, mm -hmm. and heart, and body. Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP certified facilities and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective 
herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. Okay, that's, that's beautiful and that's helpful. Thank you. We're going to need to wind this down in a few minutes, but this question has been nagging at me, so I, I, I need to ask it. Is this the bonus question? This is the bonus question. Here's the bonus question. I feel it in my bones. I feel it in your bones. <laughs> so we're talking a lot about using our language skillfully and how to help people with it and being mindful about it. I have concerns about accidentally using my language in a way that's harmful because any powerful, useful tool can do a lot of good, but we could inadvertently do some harm. As we wind this down for today, I'd like to get your thoughts on some things to be careful about in how we speak to people so that we don't inadvertently cause some problems. Good. You, I'm glad you, uh, you're once again bringing me back to this question of the diagnosis, because I think that's one of the places that we can, we can inadvertently do some unskillful work with our patients. So again, if we're talking about the importance of naming something to tame it, again, what level of insight are we getting from a diagnosis? What level of insight is our patient getting from our diagnosis? If you want to apply that name it to tame it, I think the best way to do it is that I've learned so far is through A, creating a good rapport with your patient. And again, those are skills that can be learned and be using these clean questions because they're very open-ended and they are, they're formulated. Can I say that, Nick? That they're formulated in a way that doesn't lead the patient anywhere except into their own experience. You're not leading the witness. You're not putting words in their mouth. You're not imposing your agenda. You're just, using these very open questions. And is there a location to that? And what is it like? I'm not telling them what it's like. I'm not offering suggestions about what it's like. I'm just asking them to come up with their own relationship and their own way of speaking about it. So I think that's, yes, thank you for that question because certainly even in the 10 questions, even in the 10 questions, we can, we can say things that aren't, aren't going to be helpful for our patients. We think we're asking a question, but we're also inputting a lot of information and beliefs and assumptions. And um, so that's why I really love and appreciate this model that Nick has brought to light that you, that you brought to us, Michael, through your podcast. I wouldn't have met Nick except through it. I wouldn't have known about his work. So thank you. It was super valuable work. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, I, I love what you said about using questions and inquiry 
to lead our patients into themselves. Not, not, not to input our ideas, not to try to get them to do something, not because you know we've got a Chinese medicine idea and they should do X, Y, Z, but to actually lead them to themselves, trusting that in there, they will have the answers that are right for them. And people like me that don't like to be told what to do, I would be, I would be much more amenable to that kind of thing than if you try to tell me, well, you know, Michael Max, if you just take a deep breath every now and then, you wouldn't be so uptight. You know, I mean, that kind of thing makes me uptight. Yeah, it's so powerful. And I can totally relate. I'm a, I do not like being told what to do. And I think this is why I love this process so much, because it lets me soften that part of myself that's so reactive and rebellious. Well, I, I think most shiatsu, shiatsu acupuncture people are kind of natural rebels. That, uh, you know, why would you choose such a wacky profession? But to come back to your bonus question there, Michael, um, I think it's true. At the end of a session, people want to ask, oh, what did you find? They want some information that's part of the package. Right. And I think that's absolutely fair enough. And if I go to see my acupuncturist, I want him to tell me something. And I always find that a very challenging time because, as you say, I don't want to say anything that's going to be un unhelpful for them to take away. And I, ju I just try to go into some kind of creative space and use the five elements because they have a poetry, they have a, a metaphorical quality to them that people I find always can relate to. So whatever I'm, whatever I've, my hands have been discovering as I've been working with shiatsu, uh, first of all, I have to translate that into something that my head can make sense of. Then I have to translate it into something that makes sense to them. And there's a lot going on in that. But I, you know, I find that using those beautiful, poetic, metaphorical qualities of the five elements, people can really relate to them. And after all, all of this stuff we're going through now, so many people are saying that this is going to bring us back to a sense of nature, bring us back to an awareness of the planet. And what people aren't saying so much is that our bodies are part of the natural world. My hands, when I do shiatsu, have an intelligence to them that my brain does not have. And the more we can come back to our own bodies and what our bodies are telling us about how we live on this planet, the more healthy we're going to be in, in ourselves and in how, more, you know, as important, how we relate to each other in different new ways. Let me just check something out with you here, because again, I'm, I'm, I'm still chewing a little bit on this, how to be helpful by avoiding the unskillful use of language and therefore not being helpful. It, 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 and if I'm catching the drift of what you guys are talking about and the immense, the immense and yet at times also gentle power of questions, just as like a, um, a guideline, so to speak. I'm wondering if when I want to say something, because I think I'm trying to be helpful, would it be better if I could turn it into a question and speak it that way? Would that be, would that, does that make sense? Am I? With the clean language, the point is, yes, always turn it into a question if you can, but the question, the core of the question, the nugget in that question is the words that the client, the patient just used. They're not coming from you. They're coming from the patient. So we have to stay with what the patient is telling us. 
but but at the end when the patient says well what did you find then the the bridge that i have there as i was just saying i'm looking for some metaphor i'm looking maybe how i can frame this in five element terms at the same time i'm using one of the skills in clean language which is to come back to key words that came up maybe right at the beginning of the conversation mm -hmm. before they lay down at all listening to the metaphors that they brought in and seeing how I might, you were talking about reframing earlier, Michael, how might I usefully reframe that metaphor in you know, some kind of five element language um, that makes sense to them? Because it's their metaphor and it's changing a bit. Yes, and, and you're helping them to fill their metaphor out. Yeah, yeah, to explore the metaphor, to go into deeper into it, because that's one of the key principles about metaphor and you know cognitive linguistics is that the, you have the primary metaphor like nowadays at the moment we've got this primary metaphor here in the uk at least that dealing with this pandemic is a war mm. yeah we have we have the same thing over here sure you have the secondary metaphors that come from that which is the the people in the hospitals are the front line they're in the front line we've got to mobilize they're heroes. These doctors and nurses are heroes. Mm -hmm. They're making sacrifices. And we don't even realize that this whole way of thinking is being created by the primary metaphor of, of war. Yes, the, the war metaphor is powerful. And I really appreciate, Nick, what you were saying before about how you know, your hands are part of nature. We're part of nature. And, and the way that we speak with our patients and the way that we work with our patients and it sounds like one of the things that we can do is help give them other metaphors for dealing with something even as as serious as the fear and anxiety around COVID-19. Uh, I have a, can I share a little story from a patient that I spoke with this week? So she couldn't come see me because I've closed my practice and she couldn't come see me anyway because she uses a, um, like a neighborhood service to get around and people are not driving each other in cars anymore. So she was basically on her own at home and uh, she became very sick. She, possibly she's had this disease. So while she was sick, every day we touched base with each other and her job was just to tell me in words what she was feeling to, so she, to describe her symptom. She's been a patient of mine for many years, so she knows the, she knows the language. Um, and how to share it. Well, she came through it. So it was three weeks of being very sick with some kind of respiratory problem. And again, she hasn't been to her doctor, so we don't know what she had. But this, she called me and she said, I don't, I made this appointment to talk to you because I just want to tell you that I feel really good. I feel like I came out of this and I feel really good, better better than before, which is, you know, for someone with a chronic illness, that's pretty phenomenal. And I was thanking her. I said, it was all on you. You know, you were able to tap into what you were experiencing and you were able to share that with me. And together we could work this out with whatever herb she had at home, with acupressure, with diet, with rest, with Qigong, and she's, I wrote this down because it really struck me. She said, I'm so grateful. I'm getting really good at figuring out what's going on with my body and what I can do about it. Music to your ears. Yes. That, I mean, that is, it's like, that's the job of a really good doctor. 
you know, and, and it comes back to the Tao Te Ching. Is it the Tao Te Ching? I think it's the Tao Te Ching about like the best rulers are the ones where something gets done and the people say, we did it ourselves, right? I, my suspicion is the best doctoring is just that, where the patient goes, I, I did this myself, you know, with assistance, but they did it themselves. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's the beauty of this um, learning these skills of being mm -hmm. able to communicate and converse with the subconscious mind, with the body, with the left and right brain together. And yeah, and you know, unlike, mm. it, it is so skillful, you know, that statement, hold your, hold your enemies closer. It is so skillful to, you, to look at everything as a possibility. There is no end, you know, this uh, war on COVID-19. I think if we looked at it differently, boy, we'd have a really different handle well, on it. And, and I'm thinking about the war that we have with ourselves as well, but that might be a whole other conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, Nick, any last things to share before we start to wind this down for today? Just, just to pick up on what Margot was saying there, it's a, like, um, you, I mean, in acupuncture, you, we talk about patients in, in shiatsu, we talk about clients, but we both talk about the other kind of patients. This is about having the patience to stay with what's going on and what's the right pace for this person who's coming to see you. And, and it isn't just a, a healing or a treatment, it's a training and a learning. And that, that person that Margot was just talking about, obviously, you know, yeah, she's been seeing you for years. She's gradually learned and beginning to get that wonderful sense that she has more power, she has more control. And she has a better relationship with that whole enormous part of her, with the body-mind part, um, which is, after all, what we are, mostly. So, that yes, that's the thing, just the patience, having the patience to let the process happen at the, at the, at the rate which is right for the, this particular person. Two patients in the room. That's, that's a good reminder. Or maybe three. Maybe three. <laughs> Yeah. Well, great. Well, I always enjoy spending some time with the two of you and I learned some really valuable things today, especially about bringing that left side of the brain along, not making it the enemy. That, wow. I'm just, I'm curious to see how that's going to unfold for me here in this next bit of time. But I want to speak just briefly too. I know that you two are doing work individually. Margo, you're in the midst of writing a book. Nick, you already have a book. If you want to know more about Nick's book, uh, we, we did a podcast on that. And I'll put that up on the show notes page. Nick and Margot are also doing some work together, very much around what we've been talking about today. And, and there'll be some more information about that on Geological here in the near future. So if, uh, if you enjoyed and felt some sense of connection with what we were discussing today, uh, we've got some opportunities for you to learn more about that. Um, but in closing, Margo and Nick, could you just tell us where people can find you online if they want to get in touch? And They can find me online at nickpole.com, N-I-C-K-P-O-L-E.com. Well, we're equally not terribly creative. <laughs> I'm at Margo, M-A-R-G-O-T, Rossi, R-O-S-S-I.com. For we I think we need to come up with some metaphor for our 
Do you have a metaphor, Nick, for your practice? Mine is cloud gate. Uh, no, I don't have a metaphor. <laughs> uh, what? Nick without a metaphor? How could that be? Caught me with my metaphors down. <laughs> Words that touch. That's a good metaphor, too. Which is the name of your book. Your name is a metaphor anyway, actually, if you think yeah. about it. Yeah, that's true. All, all names are metaphors in some way. Yeah. All right. Again, material for another show. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I'll make sure that that all that information is on the show notes page. People would like to get in touch with you. I look forward to our next conversation. Me too. Thank you. Great to see you both. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Who doesn't enjoy listening to a good story? And all great storytellers know that the most interesting and enticing stories are the stories that we tell to ourselves. The stories we tell can put us in touch with resources that we didn't know we had or can leave us further adrift from essential aspects of ourselves that know how to heal and take care of us. So I appreciate the perspective of these two practitioners and look forward to learning more from them. Hey, it's the middle of May as this podcast goes out, and that means we're coming up to the third anniversary of Geological. Oh, yeah. You never know what might happen when you decide to follow a little bit of a hunch. We have a little tradition here of bringing on a listener of the podcast for the anniversary show. So if you'd like to join me for this special podcast episode, send me an email or a postcard or a drawing, sing a song, or hit the record button on your computer and simply talk to me. I would love to have one of you join me. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.